Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. We have breaking news on a chaotic situation in Russia. There are reports of military vehicles on the streets in Moscow right now. The Russian military is accusing the head of the mercenary Wagner group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, of calling for an armed coup in Russia. Prigozhin is vowing violent retaliation for what he says was a deadly attack by Russian forces that killed a huge amount of his mercenaries. President Biden has been briefed on this situation. We're told national security officials at the White House are closely watching developments and not weighing in until they have a clearer sense of what exactly is happening. Let's go right now to CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance in Kyiv. Matthew. Well, Alison, tensions between Yevgeny Prigozhin and the Russian Defense Ministry are finally coming to a head, with the Wagner leader threatening to attack Russian troops in retaliation for what he says was a deadly strike against his own paramilitary forces. In extraordinary developments tonight, the Russian security services are accusing Prigozhin of starting a coup attempt uh, and have launched a criminal prosecution against him that could eventually see him jailed in what would be a, a dramatic fall from grace of one of the country's most prominent and outspoken figures. For months, Prigozhin has been lambasting Russia's high command for its handling of the Ukraine war, uh, routinely accusing the defence minister uh, and the country's uh, defence chief of incompetence in the hours before the alleged attempt, at, attack on the Wagner camp. Prigozhin posted more comments on social media, accusing the defence ministry of deceiving President Putin about the threat posed by Ukraine ahead of his February 2022 invasion. He also questioned Russian invasion motives for the war. Now, Moscow has been placed on high alert and um, Prigozhin uh, has uh, said there's going to be a march for justice against Russian officials he said were responsible for attacking Wagner while his mercenary forces are said to be now entering the southern Russian region of Rostov. Alison. Okay, Matthew Chance, thank you very much for the update. Oren Lieberman is live for us at the Pentagon right now. Okay, so Oren, to help us understand what's happening, we've heard some reports that there are Russian tanks or armored vehicles in the streets of Moscow. Does the Pentagon know what's happening at this hour? We certainly see these videos that are being put out by Reuters and by others, so it's clear that this is happening. The question is... What exactly does it mean and how far does this go? And that's where the Pentagon at least has not indicated to us exactly what they believe is, is the sort of process of events that they expect to play out. And that's because it's so difficult to know right now. We have spoken with U.S. officials who tell us they're watching this very closely. And as Matthew Chance pointed out, for months the U.S. has watched Evgeny Prigozhin as he's tried to build his power base and essentially expand his influence not only with Russian President Vladimir Putin but but with the Kremlin. But this is obviously a dramatic change of events here. The U.S. watching this very closely, even if there isn't a, a precise picture of exactly what's happening on the street at this point. Uh, yeah, so Oren Prigozhin posted this video that we have to social media that he says right here shows that the Wagner camp was hit by a Russian military strike. Other than this video, is there any evidence of that Russian attack on Prigozhin's troops? Not that we're aware of, and that's part of what makes this so difficult to know what's really happening there. You have essentially three different bases of power. There are more, but three big ones, and that's Evgeny Prigozhin himself and his Wagner mercenary group. You have Russia and, and its state media, and you have the Russian Ministry of Defense. Unfortunately, none of those are, are reliable sources of information, especially not 
at a time like this. Prigozhin himself has, has lied and exaggerated and contorted Russian state media, as we've seen over the course of, of the past year and a half or, or more, has put out essentially its own narrative and version of events. And the Russian Ministry of Defense has barely put out any reliable information on Ukraine. So it's incredibly difficult to try to parse through all of this and understand exactly what's happening. And if what Prigozhin is using as his as his sort of reason to act here really happened, or if he just essentially created it and fabricated it as a justification for himself. Or, and as you know, Prigozhin is vowing retaliation for that attack that he says happened. Is there evidence that he is actually mobilizing a coup right now? I think in one of his, his statements, he denied that he's trying to carry out a coup, and he hasn't at least in, in the statements that I've seen said, hey, I'm going all the way to Moscow and I'm aiming at the Kremlin. At least according to the statements he's put out, he is in, as Matthew Chance pointed out, Rostov, which is uh, essentially a region just south uh, east uh, of Ukraine there. And that's what the claim is right now, how far he wants to take this, how far he's willing to go. And whether he's even where he claims he is, that's, that's something that hopefully will become clearer in the, uh, in the hours ahead. Orrin Lieberman, thank you very much for being live for us with that status report. Joining me now is CNN military analyst, Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. General, thanks so much. I know you've been monitoring this now for a couple of hours. What is happening in Russia? You know, Allison, some back and forth. Uh, Matthew and, and Oren just elaborated on some very important factors. First of all, you can never believe what comes out of Russia. There is always an element of what they call Moskarovka. It's a deception effort to fool the enemy into thinking they're doing something that they're not. But there are also indicators. We're seeing military vehicles loggering, you know, forming uh, groups within Red Square, increasing the security around the Moscow region itself. You're also seeing on telegram channels some firefights going on in the province of Rostov which is, Oren just said, to the southeast, and it's just over the border from Ukraine. This is where Prigozhin said he was going to go with his forces, and he also said his forces were attacked by helicopters when they were in a, col- a column going into that oblast in Russia. But, but Rostov is about 200 miles away from Moscow. So you don't create a coup outside of a capital city where Putin is uh, and holding court. But this comes at a horrible time. All afternoon long, you've seen Russian generals get on telegram channels saying, Prigozhin, don't do what you're doing right now. It's going to be harmful to what we do. You now, you now see the map of Rostov outside the border of Ukraine. And, and again, to the northeast of that is the capital of Moscow. It, it would take a long time for Prigozhin and his troops to, to do something within the capital city where a coup is normally formulated. But you have all these generals, Russian generals on telegram channels today saying, Prigozhin, don't do this. It's only going to hurt our cause. The Ukrainians are coming to our zero line, which is what they call their final defensive lines. And we have control. Don't mess with them now. The, The problem is with that, Allison, there's a whole different subset between Russian generals and what's going on in the Kremlin and what the individual soldiers are experiencing on the front line. But when that crust and when that command infrastructure further breaks down, as we've seen it done so many times during this war within the, the Russian hierarchy, it only causes more problems at the front. So th- this is a fascinating dynamic of personalities inside of Moscow and the Kremlin. 
How much is it going to affect the front line? I'm not sure just yet, but I got to tell you, I'd much rather be on the Ukrainian side right now than the Russian side because there is utter chaos and dysfunction allegedly on the Russian side, whereas the Ukrainian side continue with their momentum in their offensive. And speaking of the Kremlin, do we know Vladimir Putin's status tonight? Is he there? Do we know whose side, who he would side with, Prigozhin or his own military generals? Yeah, well, we don't know where he is right now, and that's stoking the fires. Is he still, is he well? Is he still alive? Is he being taken under house? I mean, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories going on right now. I would bet that Mr. Putin is in a very safe place, continuing to execute his duties. The problem is this personality dynamic, as, as Matthew said, and, and as Oren said, between Prigozhin, Putin, the defense ministry Shoigu, the general in charge of all the army, uh, uh, Gerasimov, all the subordinate generals like Sarah Bokin uh, and others that were on telegraph, uh, telegram channels this evening, you know, those are the kind of personality dynamics that has only hurt Russia since the very beginning of this war. One other thing, if I may, Allison, I was in Moscow in 1994, a year after the last coup, where a tank actually fired on that white building of the film that you were just showing, the, the Russian parliament. Uh, it was the last coup they had. General Shaboykin, who was pleading with Prigozhin tonight, was a young lieutenant colonel in that tank unit that fired the first the first shot at the Russian parliament. He spent several months in jail in a gulag because of that last coup attempt. And now he's uh, on telegram asking for support for Mr. Uh, Mr. Putin as this continues. That is interesting history and context, General. So, you know, we're trying to get real information. And as you point out, it's very hard out of Russia. So Russian TV interrupted their regularly, regularly scheduled programming to denounce Prigozhin's claims as basically unreality. Uh, so how, how will the Pentagon figure out what's actually happening there tonight? Well, I, I think they're not, first of all, they're not going to rely on Russian TV for any truth telling, that's for sure. So the U.S. Uh, intelligence community probably has a much better feel for what's going on, certainly, than we do. But I would also suggest certainly a better feel for what's going on than even Mr. Putin does. They have intelligence, human factors inside of Russia, inside of Russia that's giving them information. They have satellite imagery of any kind of troop movement. So if Prigozhin really is moving, we probably have a pretty good feel for that. They have what's called Mazent, signals intelligence, reading their mail. So all of these things, I think, give you know the best equipped intelligence community, the United States, with some very accurate information of what's happening. And by the way, it's a great question because I'm sure we're sharing quite a bit of that with the Ukrainian government. If Prigozhin does do this, if this is real, and Prigozhin does, uh, is angry enough to retaliate, who has the upper hand? The, the Wagner group and his fighters or the Russian military? Yeah, that, that's a great question because the Prigozhin Wagner group has been fighting very well on the front lines. They have been somewhat successful, although as we've reported over the last few months, much of that has been a meat grinder. They've just been throwing soldiers to their death. But truthfully, the Prigozhin Wagner group is mostly an infantry force. In other words, dismounted soldiers. They have some conventional equipment, but they certainly don't have fighter bombers or tanks uh, in the scale that the rest of the Russian army has. But as we've seen throughout this war, the Russian army has not fought well either. And there's an increasing protest movement inside of Russia, as well as some of the, the groups that have 
attacked within Russia from the Ukrainian side. So I think you're seeing a, a Putin that perhaps is taking a lot of hits from a variety of different angles. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't bet on either side, to be honest with you. If it was Prigozhin versus the entire Russian military, uh, it might be an interesting fight, but I'm not sure who would come out on top. But notwithstanding that, it's going to certainly be a benefit to the Ukrainian uh, uh, counteroffensive. Okay, we're going to talk about that right now. General Hurtling, thank you so much for your expertise. Let's bring in now Ambassador William Taylor, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Ambassador, thank you so much for being here. So, of course, you know this region well. Help us understand the gravity of what we're seeing unfold here. Charles, and this this is very important. As General Hurtling just said, it's very important in particular for the Ukrainians. Ukrainians are now wrapping up their counteroffensive. This is the perfect timing for the Ukrainians to really take advantage of this chaos um, in Moscow, chaos in the in the Russian military. Um, so this is an opportunity for the Ukrainians to take advantage of uh, that that misunderstanding, not knowing the. As General Harding just said, the Russian soldiers are not real sure what's going on back with their chain of command. So this is this is very important uh, development that we'll be watching carefully. As we understand it, the Kremlin is cordoned off tonight. Do you have a sense of the status of Vladimir Putin, where he would be during all of this? Probably not in the Kremlin, uh, Alison. Probably not there. He doesn't spend many nights in the Kremlin. He is, uh, I'm sure, um, in a very safe place. Uh, He's probably watching very carefully. He should be very nervous. I mean, he's got big problems here. He's got the military that has now diverted its attention to one of his own, to the Prigozhin, to the to the Wagner Group. So, um, and as again, as General Hurling just said, Putin's got real problems within the country. So this is a, this is a series of problems that he's got to deal with right now. Um, Putin and Prigozhin go way back, as you well know, and they were, you know. Prigozhin was a close confidant of Putin's. Do you have a sense of where Putin's loyalties lie, if that is even such a thing with Putin? It's a good question. Does he have loyalties? I think the answer is probably no. The expected understanding is that Putin changes his mind, shifts his his uh, favor from one to another to ensure that no one gets particularly uh, powerful that, that could threaten him. Um, you're right. Uh, 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 Putin and Prigozhin go way back, um, but as uh, not as military. So Prigozhin has recently come onto the scene as the head of the Wagner. Uh, for a while there, he denied it was even it was, he was even associated with it. Now, now he admits and it's clear that he's involved in this thing. And Putin has got to worry that uh, Prigozhin is mounting a coup. It's t- they're, they're talking about a coup, an armed resura- re- uh, 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 armed coup um, that could, could threaten Putin's regime. So uh, is that for real? I mean, in other words, you're saying that the Wagner group, if Prigozhin were to go ahead with this, this armed rebellion, as he's threatening tonight, that uh, he could pull off a coup? He has said that he's doing a march for justice. Uh, someone earlier said that he, that he was conducting a coup. He said, no, 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 this is not a coup. This is a march for justice. So, yes, he is hoping to get support from other units, other military units. He's hoping to get support from the Russian people. Um, he's hoping to get support from from Russian soldiers who are disgruntled. Uh, General Hurtling just uh, described how they've been thrown into the 
to the meat grinder um, around Bakhmut in Ukraine. So there are families that have lost soldiers, a lot of families, 200,000, probably more, 250,000 families who have lost their loved ones. Um, there's discontent. And, and Prigozhin is undoubtedly trying to capitalize on that. So, yes, this is a potential coup. Let's talk about that, what you just touched on, the morale in Russia, because the war, their war effort has been uh, roundly criticized as a disaster. It did not go the way Vladimir Putin had intended it to. The U.S. believes there's something like 100,000, maybe more Russian troops that have been killed. What effect is that having on morale in Russia, not just in the military, but broadly in terms of support for the war in Ukraine? As it's a good question. We don't really know. Um, we know the kind of things you just said. That is somewhere 100,000, even 200,000 families have lost lost uh, soldiers, have lost brothers and fathers. Um, so, so that's got to be that's got to be weighing on a lot of Russians. But when you when you look at the polls, um, the polling that is done, if you can put any credence into these polls, the the Russian people up until now have supported Putin. However, when he's challenged. When, as you just pointed out, he's made some big mistakes militarily. Uh, he's not done well on the battlefield. If he's now got problems within his own military structure, uh, not within his army, but within the military structures, people are going to lose confidence. People could well lose confidence. And when a dictator um, loses the confidence of people around him, he could be in trouble. Ambassador William Taylor, thank you very much. Uh, for walking us through everything that we're trying to understand tonight in Russia. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, we'll have more of our breaking news, this chaotic situation in Russia. The Kremlin's security service accuses the Wagner Group's mercenary leader of calling for an armed rebellion. We'll have the latest. Okay, back to our breaking news. Videos appear to show armored vehicles in the streets of Moscow tonight. The Russian military accuses the head of the Wagner Group of attempting a coup. Let's bring in former Congressman Adam Kinzinger. He was on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and is a lieutenant colonel in the Air National Guard. Congressman, thanks so much for being here. What's your reaction to what's unfolding in Russia tonight? Well, it's not entirely surprising, only because, um, you know, as we've seen in Russia in the past, it always ends with, like, coup attempts. There's always this internal strife in Russia, and, why I certainly didn't expect, I don't think anybody predicted what we would be seeing tonight. Tonight, certainly you saw Prigozhin in the lead up to this being very outspoken uh, against the Ministry of Defense. There was kind of this expectation that maybe some of this was a game or just power politics, but this has certainly gone to the next level. So uh, this is actually really good for Ukraine in the long run. And frankly, for the world, because regardless of what ends up happening with this, the Wagner Group is probably going to be out of action around the world. Uh, I'm, I guess, heartened to hear you say that because chaos in Russia doesn't always sound great for the world. So chaos in Russia where the military, whatever move is happening is precarious. You're confident that that would work out well for Ukraine and the rest of the world? Well, I'm not confident of anything because it's a it is obviously a very tenuous situation. And, you know, there's always going to be a lot of fear whenever you hear about instability in Russia. Russia has nuclear weapons. This happens about every you know few years we hear about this. And but for Ukraine itself, for the war in Ukraine, this can't be anything but good. If you think about it, Wagner is actually a, really a terrorist organization, quite honestly. But they took Bakhmut and basically destroyed the entire city. 
Um, they've been engaged in Syria, killing innocent Syrian civilians. They've been engaged in Libya. Uh, these mining operations in Africa and all over Africa, uh, it, it's a really brutal organization. But you take that combat power now away from the war in Ukraine. Obviously, now the Russian military has to put some of its focus elsewhere. And for the whole world, now to have Wagner basically be on the outs with a lot of the terrible things they're doing around the world, I think that's that's a good thing in the long run. Congressman, what would a coup even look like in Russia? Does the Wagner group have the numbers in order to pull off a coup? Well, I think it all depends on where the military would end up falling, on where the population would end up falling. Uh, and he doesn't have to, to march all the way to Moscow. You think about it, Russia is a very kind of uh, limited in terms of logistics. Uh, so all he has to do is take certain logistics hubs. All he has to do is cut off or control certain railway, for instance. And you can basically paralyze the military movements. You can paralyze the economy that way. And then Prigozhin can either extract something or bring the, the folks on his side. So I personally am not sitting around expecting a legitimate traditional coup to happen in terms of, you know, Vladimir Putin's out and Prigozhin's in. It's possible. But I certainly think he's going to extract some big concessions. He has no choice now because now there's a price on his head for sure. Uh, What does this mean for Vladimir Putin? Well, I mean, every day, really since he launched the war in Ukraine, his hold on power gets to weak. It continues to weaken. I think on the one hand, the positive for him may be it could give him an excuse to end the war in Ukraine because he can say, oh, look, I have this internal security situation we now need to focus on. It's possible because what he wants to do is he knows he's losing in Ukraine, but he can't declare that. And so every day that goes by, he throws more and more bodies at this war simply because it buys him an extra day on the earth. So I think he's continu- his, his hold on power is certainly tenuous. I, I don't think there's not a lot of people, including me, that would probably expect him to be in power in five years. And so he just has to keep fighting and fighting. And, and this is one more distraction for him. So in terms of Ukraine, how does um, President Zelensky capitalize on this? Well, you have a distracted Russian force. You have a confused Russian force. That doesn't mean they're not going to fight. It doesn't mean they're going to become any easier. They won't. But now the, the, the Wagner troops have been pulled. You have that bit of a vacuum. Um, there's a lot of confusion. So it's a good time to hit. And there's actually some reports that they're striking in Bakhmut tonight. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a hit to morale. It's a Russia with a divided attention span now. And it's actually weakened combat power. Not to mention, again, I mean, there really could be Russian soldiers that have some sympathy, maybe not for Wagner, but some sympathy for some anti-Putin sentiment. What is the U.S., how is the U.S. going to respond to this? Or what should the White House reaction be? Well, probably not too much right now. I think working with Ukraine to understand the intelligence of this, how you can take advantage of it on the battlefield, which they've been doing very well so far. Uh, You know, we don't want to necessarily get involved in any civil war or civil conflict in Russia. But let me say this, too. This is an important moment for us now to remind those that have been parroting Putin's lies, you know, whether it's Tucker Carlson or people in, frankly, the Senate and the House They've been parroting the lies that this was a war brought on somehow by NATO, that Ukraine deserved it, because Prigozhin himself, again, the head of basically a terrorist organization, said to the Russian people tonight that Russia has been lying to them about the cause of the war. Russia has been lying to them about who's the aggressor in the Donbass. 
and and that's something to remember when American commentators are saying that Vladimir Putin is actually an honorable man that's telling the truth. Yeah, really good context. Congressman, thank you very much for talking to us tonight. You bet. Okay, up next, more breaking news on this busy Friday night. The U.S. Coast Guard will now lead the investigation into the Titan submersible disaster. We have the new details for you. We have more breaking news tonight. This on the catastrophic implosion of the Titan submersible. The United States Coast Guard will now lead the investigation into this incident. CNN's Jason Carroll is live for us in Boston. So, Jason, what does it mean that the Coast Guard is going to lead now? Right. And and just to point out, Allison, as you know, not just the U.S. Coast Guard, but in addition to that, we've also gotten word today that the National Transportation Safety Board is also going to be a part of this uh, investigation. And in addition to that, you've got the Canadian Transportation Board involved as well. What's going to be key to the investigation, though, forensic evidence, right? You've got to get as much as you can, gather as many pieces as you can of the Titan as possible. That's why it's so important for those remotely operated vehicles uh, to continue work on the ocean floor. So while you've heard word about vessels pulling out of the area, and indeed that is happening in the North Atlantic, uh, those ROVs, those remotely operated vehicles, are staying there. They're continuing to scour the debris area, trying to get as much evidence as possible because what uh, forensic experts are going to have to do is they're going to have to get pieces of that hole and they're going to have to get try to do some testing on that to try to come to some conclusion about the integrity of the hole. This, as we've heard from so many people over the last 24 to 48 hours who, have, who say that they raised issues with OceanGate about its safety protocols and about the integrity of the Titan. Allison? But Jason, what about this marine certification company that rejected a request to certify yeah. the Titan? Right. Uh, Lloyd's Registrar, and that is the company that typically does this type of marine vessel registration. Uh, according to what we've heard at, here at CNN, uh, there was a request uh, from OceanGate to have Titan certified. This was back in 2019, and this company denied this, the request to do that did not want to work with them. The company did not provide a reason as to why that happened. But what's interesting about that, you'll remember that OceanGate on its website had said that they had decided to forego getting registered, saying that it was standing in the way of innovation. That was something that was up on their website. That website has now been taken down. Hmm. Allison. Okay. Still a lot of questions. Jason Carroll, thank you very much. Let's bring in David Wad. He was a passenger on the Titan sub in 2021. In fact, he took the same trip on board the Titan to see the Titanic wreckage two years ago. Um, David, thank you so much for your time and for being here. Back at that time, two years ago, when you took this trip down to view the Titanic, did you have any reservations about the safety of the submersible? No, I did not. And uh, in fact, I felt very lucky to be one of only 200 some odd people who would have ever seen the Titanic underwater uh, at the 12,500 foot level. And now I feel of course very lucky that I went on the fifth trip with Titan um, when the hull was still strong enough to withstand that pressure. But I did not have any reservations. I thought the trip was very professionally run. Um, I, I adored 
Stockton and PH, who were on the trip with me. Uh, only Stockton was in the submersible, not PH, on that particular dive. But I didn't have any reservations. I just was so excited to be doing something that I'd been hoping to do for 11 years. Hmm. And what did Stockton tell you at that time about safety? What did you ask him? Did you know, for instance, that he had employed a sort of unorthodox uh, construction of the submersible that other people in the industry didn't know if it would work? Basically, it wasn't industry standard. Did you know that at the time? No, I did not know that. I did know because I was originally supposed to go out in 2019 when they thought the uh, the pressure test would be finished and Titan would be able to take out passengers in 2019. And there were some sort of problems with weather in the Bahamas where they were testing it and other things. And so they scratched all those uh, trips that were scheduled for 2019. I think then the Titan was tested and found that maybe it had to be reinforced some more, which I think was done during 2020. I don't know all the details in that. And I was pretty confident in 2021 when I was on the trip that it was safe. So, David, what was the trip like? What I mean, did you get a good view of the Titanic? Okay, I uh, that particular trip I was on, which was the uh, uh, on the fourth day of the five day trip, we ended up near the stern rather than the bow because you're never sure what the currents are. And uh, where we were released and started to do the two hour descent, we ended up much closer to the stern. So I was very disappointed. I didn't get to the bow, but the stern is still fascinating. It's a, a mangled, very big piece of metal. And uh, uh, we also were in the debris field. The next day, which was the last day for all those summer trips, uh, three other men went down with Stockton and PH and actually got to film the bow. And of course, when everyone thinks of the Titanic, they think of the bow. And I was also filming uh, because I was going to make a movie for charities uh, about this trip. So I was disappointed, but still the whole process of going down 12,500 feet was amazing. So I considered it a very successful trip. And what was it like? I mean, down there, was it pitch black? Are you all just looking out that one window? Are you all taking turns in that submersible? Oh, there also was a a computer screen uh, that fed us all the uh, video footage from a camera that was mounted on top of the Titan. But otherwise, uh, the two men in front of me who were seated looking right out the 21-inch viewport and myself right behind them, that's what we were looking out of. But it got dark fairly quickly. We then went through a little zone with phosphorescence, which was neat. And then it got pitch dark again all the way until we got close to the bottom. Then Stockton turned on the lights. And so when we hit the bottom, we could see the silt come up all around us. It took a few minutes to settle. Then he started to use the thrusters to move us around. Was it freezing cold? No, it wasn't that cold because we had just arrived at the bottom, but we did have different layers of clothes with us because it was very warm at the top uh, when we got into the submersible. And it certainly got colder and colder as we went down, but I don't remember it being really, really cold. Were there any moments during that whole process for you that I guess took hour, a couple of hours? Um, were there any moments that felt dicey? Was there any moment that you were nervous? No, I was not nervous at all. I thought I was in wonderful hands, a very professional team. Uh, every day we had meetings at seven in the morning, seven at night. And they would talk about what we were going to do the first three days because of weather. All the dives were scrubbed, um, but they were so professional in their presentations. Uh, I I did not have any problems anywhere going down. Now, I've done some other things that are a little bit dangerous. I'm certainly not an extreme 
uh, adventure at all. But I don't get scared as easily as, as a lot of people, and I don't get claustrophobia very often, uh, which I think was lucky being in that submersible for more than 10 hours. Yeah, I can tell you don't scare easily, uh, certainly. There, a lot's been made in other reports of how there was a kind of low-tech feeling to the construction. There, it, it felt a little jerry-rigged in there. You know, it was kind of a video game controller, um, things, products from off the shelf used to construct it. Did you see some of that? Only the video game controller in Stockton was very proud of that. I mean, he certainly did not hide the fact that anybody could control that submersible from this. Uh, I, I mean, I was not allowed to, but uh, from this uh, game controller, he, he was proud of it. He certainly was not trying to hide that. But I've learned since this accident, I've seen some other video of other people in there and saying there were some more things that they, he kind of bought off the shelf. But uh, he felt that, uh, I mean, he wouldn't have gone down dive after dive. He was the pilot on almost every trip if he hadn't felt that that submersible was 100% safe. David, now that you've had these 24 hours to think about this tragedy, do you have a theory on what happened? Right when I heard that they'd lost communications with the submersible, I thought that it probably had imploded. And I just thought that because I knew they had not reached the bottom. Uh, at least when they had the last communication from it, they were still 45 minutes or so from reaching the bottom. So I didn't think they could be tangled up. Uh, there are many, many different ways to release weights to get back up to the surface if they had had a problem with that. So I just kind of, but I didn't say in all the interviews I did at that point, obviously that I thought it had imploded. And uh, um, I, I kept positive uh, the way almost everyone else did. But that certainly was my first thought especially since I knew there had been some reinforcing and some uh, problems with testing back in 2019. Um, that was my first thought. Well, David Wad, thank you for sharing your experience with us. It's really interesting to talk to somebody who did this very trip and to, to hear what it was like. Um, and of course, we're, we're happy like you are that you got to have that experience. Um, so thanks for being here. It was here. amazing. That's nice You're to welcome. Hear. Okay, there's also breaking news tonight in Donald Trump's classified documents criminal case. The special counsel is asking for a new trial date. We have the details next. Breaking news tonight on the classified documents case against former President Trump. Special counsel Jack Smith filing a request tonight for the trial date to be moved to December we also have exclusive CNN reporting on the special counsel's investigation into Donald Trump's involvement in January 6th. So here to help us understand all of this, we have CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance and defense attorney Misty Maris. Thank you both for being here. OK, so Caitlin, tell us about these late Friday filings. Late Friday filings, Allison. These are a little bit procedural, but they're important procedural steps that have to be taken. So there's the first one uh, is this trial date request from the prosecutors. This was very expected that that trial date the judge put on the calendar earlier this week for August was never going to hold because there needs to be a lot done in this case, especially around 
classified documents uh, and the handling of them. There, that all has to be litigated with special proceedings. So now the Justice Department is saying they want that trial date to be in December. Still a pretty quick turnaround for a trial. We'll have to see what happens, though, with the judge and Donald Trump's team. And the other thing, Allison, in these late night filings tonight is that there are 84 witnesses, according to what the Donald Trump's team says, uh, are on a list that the Justice Department provided that he is not allowed uh, to be talking about the details of this case with. That would be part of his release conditions, as well as the release conditions of his co-defendant, Walt Nada. Uh, and 84 names is quite a list. We're also going to have to wait and see what happens with that. The Justice Department did hand over that list after setting the bond conditions following Donald Trump saying he was not guilty in court last week. Uh, but there could be some more disputes that arise over that, even as the, uh, his co-defendant, Walt Nada, is headed um, to be in court next Tuesday to enter his initial pleading of not guilty as well. Okay, Allison? that's a lot of stuff. So, Missy, let's start with the trial date because I understand, as Caitlin was saying, that that's a short turnaround, December, moving it from August to December. In the news world, it's an eternity, okay, between <laughs> now and December. Why does it take six months to clear the classified documents. Right. Well, in the news world, 15 seconds is Thank an eternity, you. right? Yes. <laughs> but, but in this case, so look, the, the court had to put this case on the calendar under the speedy trial provision in the statute. So that's 70 days from the indictment. But it was almost always going to be pushed back. Part of it, uh, as part of the prosecution's filing, they said, look, we need to get these clearances. They can take up to two months. So this is the prosecution actually asking for this time. I would have expected that request to come from Donald Trump's team. Right. And I do think we're going to see his team jumping in and saying, December 11th is not going to work for us. We have so many pre-trial motions that we need to get filed. We're going to need even more time. And it to also does it too. behoove them to push it into election season, further into election season? Yeah, I think they're probably going to want to push it out as long as they can to, to see uh, what they can do with this case, because it's not looking so good right now. Okay, Caitlin, now tell us about the January 6th investigation. So the special counsel has given these two Republican fake electors limited immunity for their testimony. So what do we know about that? Right. So in the special counsel's January 6th investigation around the 2020 election, there has been a lot of activity where they've been bringing in grand jury witnesses who know about the fake electors, the use that the Trump campaign had of these fake electors trying to say that they that Trump had won battleground states when he hadn't uh, and trying to get the Electoral College to swing in his favor. And what happened with this immunity situation is that two of those fake electors from Nevada went into the grand jury last week and were given some limited immunity to force them to testify. They didn't want to answer questions under their Fifth Amendment rights, wanting to decline. And the prosecutor said that wasn't going to fly. They needed their testimony. So really, it's a moment where the special counsel's office is pushing for testimony, for answers, for locking down witnesses, and they're not interested in giving people delays or any ways out. And that comes amid a lot of different witnesses coming into the grand jury in this fake electors probe and January 6th. So, Misty, if they give them limited immunity, that means that they just have to say what they know or they testify against others. They could testify against others. It could be what they know. When they have this limited immunity, it just means that they will not be prosecuted. So now the door is open for them to go before that grand jury and tell their story without that fear of prosecution. So this reads that the uh, special counsel needs their testimony for this probe. And 
I would think that I'd be a little nervous because this could encompass many others in this net. The fake elector scheme, a lot of focus on that since April of last year when we saw the DOJ really start, start to investigate that aspect of the election fraud. So this is going to be a whole new aspect to the probe. And these witnesses could have some really key information in their testimony. So if you were a fake elector, you'd be nervous right now. I would absolutely be nervous. And I would be going to the prosecutors and saying, I would like an immunity deal as well in exchange for my testimony to ensure that I don't get prosecuted at, at the end of the day. Right. And so uh, what else would pro- what else are prosecutors trying to look for here? So prosecutors, it seems like there's a lot of focus on what happened after the election and all of the comments of the continuing of this narrative that the election was stolen, the money that had been received from the Trump campaign and from uh, the people in his camp relating to that to fight it and where that money went. It seems like this is a really wide encompassing probe that's really has a lot of focus on Trump's attorneys too. So you're talking about Giuliani, Powell, that's what this is looked for. And they, the phones have been subpoenaed. So it seems that that's the direction they're going. Something wider than just the fake electors. And just very quickly, what are the what's a charge? What would the charges be? Well, this could be conspiracy to defraud the United States. That would be the big one. To the extent that money, there were issues with that. It could be fraud. It could be money laundering. We don't really know where it's going to go until that information becomes public. Right now, it's behind the closed doors of the grand jury. So only time will tell. Missy Maris, thank you very much for helping us understand that. Caitlin, thank you so much for being here. Okay, just ahead, more of our breaking news coverage. Russian generals accuse the leader of the private Wagner military group of attempting a coup. And there are reports of Russian armed vehicles in the streets of Moscow tonight. Welcome back to CNN Tonight. We're following the chaotic situation in Russia, where there are reports of military vehicles on the streets of Moscow after the Russian military accuses the head of the mercenary Wagner group, Evgeny Prigozhin, of calling for a coup. Prigozhin is vowing retaliation after what he claims was a Russian attack that killed many of his troops. We're told the White House is closely monitoring this situation and that President Biden has been briefed. Let's get right to CNN's Ivan Watson for the latest on what is happening tonight. Ivan, of course, you're in Hong Kong tonight, but you have spent a ton of time reporting on all sorts of different Russian issues. So tell us your take on what's happening. Right. Well, you basically have Uh, Russia's most powerful mercenary commander, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who uh, is facing a criminal uh, court case from the uh, Russian government right now. They're accusing him of mutiny, of armed rebellion. Uh, Meanwhile, what he seems to be doing, he's describing uh, sending convoys of his troops, his mercenaries, into Russia from Ukraine as a kind of march for justice. Uh, He has accused the Russian military of attacking his forces on at least two occasions in the last 24 hours. One of those has been denied by the Russian defense ministry. Uh, We have seen on social media signs of military convoys on on highways in the Rostov region. We've also seen this kind of really dramatic footage of troops deploying in the streets of the city of Rostov 
itself. And we have geolocated those videos to show that they're near the headquarters of the Russian Defense Ministry's Southern Military Command. Now, part of the challenge here is you can't really tell whether or not these forces are Russian Ministry of Defense forces or whether they are Wagner mercenary forces, but certainly their posture is aggressive. Uh, In some cases, we can see these soldiers uh, prone position on the streets, kind of deploying around military buildings while there are ordinary Russian civilians standing next to them uh, in shorts and T-shirts. Certainly, there is a very dramatic uh, uh, power struggle taking place right now. You've had one of Russia's most senior military commanders, uh, General Suravikin, who's come out on camera urging Prigozhin and his Wagner mercenaries to submit to Russian law, to lay down their uh, their arms and saying, basically, we are brothers in arms. We have fought on the battlefields of Ukraine. Do not do this. Stop before it's too late. So there is clearly some kind of collision that is taking place right now. And Prigozhin uh, is openly accusing the Russian defense ministry, uh, the Russian defense minister himself, and the top general in the Russian military of genocide against the Russian people, and he wants to bring them to justice, he says. This is so dramatic, uh, I do not know how this will unfold in the coming hours. So, Ivan, that's what's happening in the Rostov region, what you've just explained. Then there's also stuff happening in Moscow. There are military—we've seen video of military vehicles on the streets of Moscow. The Kremlin is reportedly cordoned off. So what does that mean? That, to me, looks like uh, the center of power in Russia being fortified against potential threats. We have not seen any signs of any instability in Moscow itself right now. Uh, Ukraine and its borders and where the Wagner mercenary forces were deployed, it's, it's at least on a good day, a 15-hour drive from there, from Rostov, for example, all the way up to Moscow. Uh, but it's clear that there are checkpoints being set up, that there are efforts to try to stop whatever movement could be trying to come up from the south of the country. Uh, and let's Try to keep in mind what the Wagner mercenary group is. Uh, This is a force, uh, again, of mercenaries that has recruited from the penal system, from the prisons around Russia, uh, and sent them into battle for months now, uh, predominantly around the uh, Ukrainian city of Bakhmut. They were pulled out of there uh, in the last month or so. The Russian defense ministry had issued an order uh, that said that all mercenary groups had to sign contracts with the Russian defense ministry the Wagner boss, Prigozhin, who is uh, very present on social media, who has been leading a, a basically an information campaign, propaganda campaign against the defense ministry for months now, accusing the top generals of being corrupt, of sending soldiers uh, into battle without appropriate ammunition and weapons. Uh, he's been he's been building this campaign for some time, and now he's basically turned a uh, uh, 180 degrees against them uh, and accused them of launching this invasion into Ukraine on false pretexts to basically get promotions for themselves and to earn money for themselves. So he's challenging Vladimir Putin's uh, rationale for the war in the first place. Uh, And all of this is coming as active combat is still taking place all over Ukraine. There have been airstrikes against the Ukrainian capital uh, overnight. Uh, The Ukrainian military is 
is carrying out its counteroffensives. It's been launching raids into Russian territory uh, that uh, have been difficult for the Russian military to stop. So the question is, how will the Russian security forces deal with armored, battle-hardened ranks of convicted criminals and mercenaries now charging into the Russian heartlands. It's a scenario that is, is, is frankly, kind of mind-boggling. Excellent question. Uh, thank you very much, Ivan, for explaining all of that. We'll try to get some answers because we're going to bring in now CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton and CNN political and national security analyst David Sanger. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here with us late on this Friday night to understand the breaking news and the chaos in Russia. So let's start there, Colonel, what uh, Ivan was just talking about. Uh, in terms of, a pow- well, a military struggle, is it possible for Prigozhin and his troops to actually pull off a coup against the Russian military? Well, Allison, I think it's possible, but I don't think it's likely. I think one of the key things to think about here is, you know, how well prepared is Prigozhin to actually do this? How much support does he have from uh, not only the internal military forces, but the intelligence services like the FSB uh, and other security arms uh, that the Russian has, the police, for example, the Ministry of the Interior? All of these elements would have to be in play here for uh, Prigozhin to be successful. And it's unclear at this moment, at least to me, Uh, that he has that kind of support. It's possible for him to turn people, potentially, uh, especially with the kinds of messages that he's sending. But it seems highly unlikely that he's going to penetrate the whole Kremlin web of uh, disinformation that has so permeated the Russian media landscape up until this point. David, Prigozhin is claiming that the Russian military attacked his um, location and killed, he says, uh, he's saying, a vast number of his own Wagner Group troops. Why would the Russian military do that? Is that because they've been embroiled in this power struggle? Or is that to be trusted? I mean, can we trust Prigozhin for saying that he was attacked by the Russian military? Well, certainly, Allison, this has been brewing for a long time. And this has just been the latest and the biggest escalation of uh, Mr. Prigozhin's attack on uh, the two leading generals of the Russian military, who he's called incompetent and liars and so forth. Whether or not they really did attack that group, is it's hard to tell. And so far, I haven't heard any independent intelligence from the United States or allies that would support it. Doesn't mean it didn't happen. I'm sure everybody in the White House right now seems to be trying to figure this out as well. But I think a couple of things are probably likely to emerge from all of this murkiness. One, I agree with Colonel Layton. I, I can't imagine that they could that that Prigozhin could succeed here, but he's showing deep cracks in what Putin has tried to show for the past twenty years has been unchallenged rule. Remember how upset Putin got back in uh, the early Obama administration when he accused Hillary Clinton of interfering in uh, elections in Russia because she said that an election was rigged and he wanted to have an overwhelming support. Second, the Russian people who have had suspicions that this war was being conducted on false pretenses now have a Russian in their midst, one who they know well making that case. And the third thing that's happening here, I think, is that the Ukrainians must be thinking 
this is great. We've gotten rid of the Wagner Group, the most effective of the Russian troops. Now, the big concern, of course, for the American side is they're all watching Russia's nuclear arsenal, as we have at various other points. So far, I've heard no indication of anything moving. But that's always the big fear. What happens if you lose control? Colonel, how does um, Ukraine seize on this chaos now? Well, there are several things they can do, Allison. And as David mentioned, there are a lot of things the Ukrainians can actually look at here. One of the things I think that they would do is perhaps uh, prosecute their advantage, their tactical advantage in Bakhmut, for example. That would be a major uh, turning point potentially for the Ukrainians. Another thing that they could do is, as the Russian forces withdraw uh, potentially, Uh, to defend against uh, the Wagner Group, uh, they could backfill that area and take over areas that the Russians abandon if that happens. Uh, We don't know if that's going to happen, but those are the kinds of things that the Ukrainians are going to be looking for, I'm sure, and uh, they will probably take advantage of them as quickly as they possibly can. David, where is Vladimir Putin in all of this? And I don't just mean location-wise, I mean philosophically. Who, Who does he side with and where is he tonight? Well, we don't know where he is right now, or at least I certainly don't. Um, Frequently, if he's not in Moscow, he is at one of several of his dacas. He's got got, uh, a home he uses a lot in St. Petersburg, where he came from. He's got uh, one in Soichi. So there are are different locations where he might be. Um, But it is interesting that you have not heard him speak out on this point. Now, Prigozhin is a creature of Putin. They came up together in St. Petersburg. He was famously Putin's chef. The one time I saw him, Allison, it was when he was making a meal for George W. Bush and Putin during a summit meeting. He then went on, of course, to run the Internet Research Agency and do the trolling that was part of the interference in the 2016 election. And then, of course, starting up the Wagner Group. Putin has benefited from Prigozhin. He's, uh, his troops have been active in Syria. They've been active in Africa. And obviously, they've saved the Russians in some parts of Ukraine. So that's why we assume his, uh, he's been tolerated until now. And I think everyone's going to be sitting waiting to see if Vladimir Putin comes out and says something about this. Colonel Layton, David Sanger, thank you both so much for your expertise. Great to have you with us tonight. Thank you. We've got much more to come on our breaking news tonight. There's a chaotic situation in Russia. The Russian military is accusing the leader of the Wagner mercenaries of an attempted coup. We'll be right back. We're back with breaking news tonight. Russian generals accused the leader of the Wagner group in Russia of calling for a coup. I want to bring in CNN national security analysts Steve Hall and Juliet Kayyem right now. Guys, thank you very much for being here. Um, Juliet, of course, the U.S. intel community cannot rely on the Kremlin or the Wagner Group for real information. So what are they doing at this hour? Uh, Well, there's a 
the intelligence community is big, so there's going to be different pieces. I think for our purposes right now, the most significant is going to be military and the defense intelligence agencies. That is because this is of relevance to us, not just because of Ukraine, but because of Russia's nuclear arsenal. And the August coup, this was the coup against Gorbachev in 1991. Uh, that was, a, you know, that was a, that was a coup in which the military made assurances almost immediately to the United States that the nuclear arsenal, you know, was was under control. I, I, I don't I'm not I don't want to scare people. It's just you, you worry about mistakes. Right. You worry about instability. You worry about whether the processes that have protected us from even mistakes between Russia and the United States are still intact. Uh, and so with the defense with the with a with a you know paramilitary uh, force now coming into play, the, the Wagner Group, uh, that is very different than an internal Russian uh, uh, military taking over, say Gorbachev. So I think that's going to be the primary focus for intelligence purposes, and that the Ukraine issue and 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 what's going on in Ukraine actually will be secondary to the United States' interest at this very moment, uh, as we as they're learning what's going on as well. Okay, so that's the U.S. side. Steve, you were the uh, former chief of Russia operations in the CIA. So what's likely happening inside the Kremlin tonight? Well, all indications from what's going on on the streets just outside the Kremlin is they appear to be a little nervous. Um, This is not something that they're just they're they're taking lightly. Um, I I think it's an interesting point. Some of your guests uh, earlier were saying that, you know, there's there's not a great chance that that Prigozhin you know, acting on his own is going to be able to pull this off. And, and I sort of agree with that point. Um, you know, he, he's not going to be able to take, you know, his his soldiers and, and sort of march uh, from from the war zone in Ukraine up to up to the up to the Kremlin and, and just take over or, as he claims, to the Ministry of Defense so that he can affect justice. Um, but if he's smart and he has moved at pretty high circles in Moscow for a long time, he understands that if you're actually going to try to pull off some sort of coup, that you're going to need people on the inside who are at the very least not going to stop you and are going to look the other way. So if that's really what he's trying to do, then he has reached out to this group that I've referred to previously as the Siloviki. These are the these are the, the, the chiefs of the intelligence services, some of the senior military folks, some of the senior ministry of interior and police folks. If he's reached out to those folks and sort of greased the skids and said, look, we need to do something here. Those those elites might be saying, yeah, things haven't been going particularly well in Ukraine. They haven't been going particularly well for, for Russia. And they haven't been going particularly well for us. We've been using losing our yachts and our money. And, you know, this has got to come to an end somehow. So if he's got buy-in, if Prigozhin has buy-in from folks in Moscow, he may have a shot. Hmm. Steve, one more question for you, because we just got this into our newsroom. This is video of Russia's top commander in Ukraine, Sergei Surovikin. Uh, this is Friday night. We haven't translated it yet, but we have um, our uh, information that he's urging uh, Wagner mercenary fighters to, quote, stop and obey the will of President Vladimir Putin. So we haven't heard from Putin, though. Um, well, what do you what do you uh, make of that, Steve? Not a good sign. Uh, you know, if, if you had discipline throughout the Russian government and if you're Putin, what you're going to tell people is don't react to this. Don't say anything about this. Nobody talk about it. We don't want the we don't want everyday Russians talking about it. We want this to look like, you know, just some weird thing that's happened. That, that erosion perhaps had a little too much to drink, which has apparently happened in the past. And don't worry about it. When you've got senior Russian military guys saying, hey, 
you know, Prigozhin, this is not going to stand. You have to, you, you got to stop. That shows a big, in my opinion, fissure that you got going inside the Russian government. And of course, that's critical to the Russian population because the Russian population is constantly told by the Kremlin, hey, no matter else, no, no matter else what you have to go through, we will guarantee your stability. This isn't looking very stable right now, I don't think, to anybody who's following it inside of Russia. Go ahead, Juliet. No, I agree with that. And I think I want to pick up on what Steve was saying about the best case scenario is is truly that uh, this ends up being a, a coup that is supported internally or by Putin's people uh, uh, and that you don't have a big division. I, I, I don't want to just sound U.S. focused, but that's going to obviously be an interest right now that this is not just about Ukraine. And I think that scenario is sort of the best case scenario if this is successful. I need to make clear that what, what we are seeing on Twitter is little pieces and what people are seeing, you know, it's the reporting on the ground that we're reporting that is going to be the most significant in terms of uh, how powerful tonight is, like how real is it? Because lots of people have their agendas for why they would want a certain side to win or lose. Uh, and we'll know just because it's daylight sort of how, what that looks like uh, in the next couple of hours. Juliet, does the White House need to do anything here? Does the White House need to say anything or weigh in or are they just sitting back and watching this unfold? Well, they're not sitting back. As I mean, obvi- I, I mean, we, we know that in terms of the briefings, there, there'll be a couple of pieces. As I said, a lot of this is going to be run not out of the Pentagon, not for purposes of of sending truce, but just because that's your that's your worrisome asset is just sort of what is happening. And there's a lot of, uh, as Steve knows, there's a lot of communications at lower levels amongst military members between the two countries, regardless of, of what's happening on the diplomatic side. At the State Department, you have these different pieces. At the State Department, you're going to have outreach to our allies because they are equally concerned. Uh, this is, this is and and for Europe, it's close. So they are, are uh, destabilization is just never a great thing, especially um, uh, when we don't know how this unfolds, and especially when the other side, you know, is this group. It's not like this is not, you know, the sort of a, you know, a populist movement. This is a another a, a horrible group of people and leadership uh, uh, as, the, as the Russian leadership is. Uh, and so you will have the diplomatic outreach to have a unified front uh, uh, amongst allies as, as we've had with Ukraine. And so those are the, the different pieces. I think from the homeland front, it is just, it's just monitoring at this stage, no reason to believe that there's any threat. There's no evidence of it whatsoever. But as I said, de- destabilization is not a great thing um, uh, as as this moves forward very quickly. And the most important thing uh, right now is that no one do anything too quickly, uh, especially on the U.S. side. And I think Bi- President Biden is known for that. He does not do his foreign policy or national security by tweet. And we should be pretty grateful for that tonight. Juliet, Steve, thank you both very much. Great to talk to you. Thank you. Okay, up next, we also have breaking news in Donald Trump's classified documents criminal case. Special counsel Jack Smith with some key filings tonight. He's requesting a new trial date. Breaking news tonight in the classified documents case against Donald Trump. There's a new trial date. We also have a CNN exclusive in the special counsel's investigation into January 6th. Sources tell CNN that at least two fake electors have already received limited immunity in exchange 
for giving their testimony to a federal grand jury in D.C. CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance joins me now. Okay, there's that's a lot. So tell us what we need to know. So, Allison, on this proposed new trial date. Trial dates are not set in stone already. There was one set by the judge for August. But now, tonight in a filing, the special counsel's office came into court and said they actually want to have the trial in December. That's because they have a lot of business to take care of. They want to be able to argue over the classified documents used in this case, handling that appropriately. They also want to give the defense team some time to prepare. And so they think that December will be enough time, the appropriate time for this to go to trial. But they do also indicate that Donald Trump's team is ready to oppose that. We don't know what date they would pick, and we don't know what the judge will say ultimately. Uh, but that is feels like a couple months away, but it's actually a pretty quick timeline to get to trial. So December right now is what they're asking for. We'll see what happens there. Okay, so now tell us about this exclusive CNN reporting that these two fake electors have gotten limited immunity. What does that mean? Right. So this is the January 6th investigation that is also being conducted by the special counsel's office. But there have been no charges related to it yet. However, there's been a lot of grand jury activity, Allison. And in the past two weeks, especially, there have been a handful of people, like a half dozen people related to this fake elector scheme Donald Trump used to try uh, and overturn Joe Biden's wins in key battleground states, and particularly two electors who previously were unwilling to tell their story, what they witnessed, who they spoke with in Donald Trump's top circles. Those two people, both from Nevada, both fake electors, they went to the grand jury uh, two weeks ago and they were compelled to testify. They had to share what they knew and give evidence. And then there have been other people testifying as well. All of it put together seems to be a really aggressive stance from prosecutors that could be resulting in charges pretty soon. Okay. And then, Caitlin, there's also prosecutors still investigating possible financial crimes tied to the millions of dollars that Donald Trump raised off of the election laws. So what's the status there? Right. So, Allison, my sources are telling me that there is a separate leg or a related but kind of separate leg of the special counsel's investigation around the 2020 election that is looking at the possibility of financial crimes, even actions and payments that were made well after January 6th and Donald Trump left the presidency. But the tricky thing about this is that there could be a lot of aspects to this special counsel's investigation around January 6th and the 2020 election. The fake electors probe that I was just speaking about, that was something we knew they went really hard for information on a full year ago. And then we didn't hear a lot about it until now with this grand jury activity around the fake electors. There are other aspects of the investigation too, uh, like the testimony of Mike Pence, what he would have said about Donald Trump, what was happening in the White House, how it all fits together, if there will be charges around it, and exactly who would be the targets of the investigation, who could be charged, including Trump himself. That is still a huge question. So a lot of unknowns still. Allison? Kaylin Polance, thank you very much for sorting through all of that so we don't have to. Really appreciate it. All right, I want to bring in my panel now, former Republican Senate candidate Joe Pinion. We also have former Democratic Congressman Max Rose and defense attorney Misty Maris is back with us. Okay, so let's just break it down so that we can separate it out. First, the classified documents. Everyone is familiar with that case. So Walt Nada was one of the president's body men, one of his top aides always around him and uh, is involved 
in the classified documents, moving of boxes, et cetera. So there's now been new information that the prosecutors, I think, have given um, Donald Trump and whatnot a list of people they cannot speak to. Does that include each other? Because they've been with each other since the, uh, since being indicted. It, it could. Now, see, they're co-defendants of the case. So that's a really important aspect of it. They're both facing this similar uh, type of legal criminal liability. So they will likely be able to communicate at least through what's called a joint defense agreement to some degree. But those other, I believe it's 82 people that they have a no contact court order. Look, a no contact order, very common. You want to avoid witness tampering. Uh, and it's a condition of release. Remember, neither one of them are in jail. They're released on their own recognizance. So that is something, though, 82 witnesses. We didn't see 82 names in that indictment. So there's much more to come as this case unfolds. Congressman, how do you see all the various developments and where we are with the investigations, including in this political cycle? So here's the thing. I think we all can collectively agree that no one should want to see an ex-president indicted. Right? It's a sad day for the country. But it's clear that Donald Trump acted recklessly. His innocence is presumed. This is the United States of America. That's a pillar. And what we need right now is to respect the process. And so I think that's exactly what is happening here. I've received a top secret security clearance. It is an arduous process. They actually conduct interviews. If you've lived in another country and all, you know, it's extensive. And that's what his defense has to go through in order to actually view these top secret documents. If this was some weaponization of government where Joe Biden was actually using the tools of government to go after his political opponent in an unfair way, they wouldn't be doing something like this. So I'm actually very encouraged to, to see that they are following a responsible process here. And once again, uh, affirms what, what is so great about this country, which is that we have uh, an independent judicial system. Is that how you see it, Joe? Look, I, I, I would agree with uh, the front portion of what the uh, congressman said. Look, I, I think that, yes, uh, anytime you have a president getting indicted uh, criminally or civilly, uh, it's a bad day for the country. I would also say that in the context of a presidential election or just living your everyday life, uh, very few people find themselves better off than they were before after an indictment. So I think that there are uh, many prongs here of this process, but I think if we're getting to the core crux of the matter, uh, yeah, look, uh, there are going to be questions about what did the president know and when did he know it? There's going to be questions about his state of mind. Uh, Americans uh, figured out what quid pro quo was. Now we're learning about mens rea on the fly. Uh, but beyond that, I think, again, there is a real question uh, about the legal process as it relates to January 6th. I think that arguably it was a misguided approach to say that you're going to just kind of select your own electors and go through that process. But I do think that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, this process has to play itself. But out. are you trusting the special counsel, Jack Smith? Look, the process is going to be what the process is. I think I'm, I'm reserving judgment. Uh, but you don't have how... any reason not to trust him. Uh, look, I, I, I think that I have reason to believe that this process has not gone uh, the way that I think it should have gone. Such uh, as? 
look, I, I, I think it's arguable uh, that this case might should not have that even brought in the first place. That's but not the, cl- the classified documents case? Well, look, I, I think the classified documents case, I mean, look, Ryan Lizza sat down with the former president of, uh, with the former attorney for President Trump, uh, who said that during his grand jury testimony, that they effectively tried to get him to breach attorney-client privilege 45 different times. So I, I think at some point, right, he, and, and he also made the distinction in that interview at Ryan Slizza between what was happening with the January 6th inquiry yeah. and what was happening with the document inquiry. So I just think, again, there is enough evidence from people that have effectively no real reason to lie, who do have a pretty uh, stellar track record to say there are things happening throughout this process that give people pause, particularly because they were in this unprecedented period. Congressman, what, what do you say to that? Because, you know, obviously Oof. we hear from the Republicans that this that there's a two-tiered justice system, et cetera. Yeah, when the facts aren't on your side, you argue process. That's what you do in politics. The guy had top secret national security documents in his own possession, uh, things you know uh, associated with military plans, nuclear plans, the uh, America's vulnerabilities. And when he was asked to give them back, then when he was told to give them back, he did not respond in due course tried to hide the documents. So again, we have to reaffirm innocence, presumed, you know, an independent process. But that is reckless behavior. And I can tell you that when I was in, when I was active duty military, if someone did that, no matter what rank, the law would be coming down on them. When I was in Congress, yeah. if someone did that, this is a it would have context. been... I mean, Misty can speak to it better than I can, but again, uh, there were plenty of documents that were returned. Uh, there was an ongoing dialogue there that was occurring. So look, I, I think that we no, can all... We can no, all, we not can in all, any timely fashion whatsoever. Well, no, I, I, As we know, it was a, a year and a half. They had to subpoena the documents because he wasn't handing I, them over, and then the FBI had to go to his property to retrieve them. I think as a general rule, we can say that the president exhibited poor judgment. I think that we shouldn't be so cavalier with the secrets of the nation. But I also think that, again, from an optics standpoint, if you're looking at the fact that this is not the first time that we found yeah. classified documents in sock drawers, but, in closets, yeah, it but a real people problem. get in trouble for that very quickly. Yeah, I think huge that. distinction, and and I would say that because what what the problem is in this case, I think it's going to fall in the obstruction charges uh, and the willful. And why I say that, and again, innocent till proven guilty, I agree. But a recording of Donald Trump himself and the testimony of his lawyers, which I agree, I get the shivers when I think about breaching my privilege, but was compelled under the crime fraud exception. That's where you're the most candid and you're speaking in a way that your state of mind becomes obvious. And then one more thing. Mm. Everything he's saying after after the fact, right. the most recent interview just makes me put my hands in my head. His <laughs> lawyers must be losing their minds because that will all come back to haunt you in the courtroom. Thank you very much. Great to talk to all of you. All right. We have more breaking news ahead. The U.S. Coast Guard will lead the investigation into the Titan submersible disaster. We have new details tonight. Okay, let's get right to CNN's Ivan Watson now for the latest on what's happening in Russia. Ivan, you've covered Russia for decades. So Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of Wagner, is speaking out at this hour. What's he saying? Right. Well, in his latest statement, he claims that a helicopter opened fire on one of his convoys uh, and that his forces then 
shot that helicopter down, destroyed it, he claims, and that it's burning in the woods on the side of the highway uh, leading towards Moscow. Now, take some of this with a grain of salt because he is known to embellish and exaggerate. He has claimed earlier, uh, accused the Russian military of firing rockets at a rear base of his Wagner mercenary group and of killing many of his people. Uh, But this is a sign of the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing and the accusations that are being made. He goes on in this audio message to say uh, that uh, he and his forces, all 25,000 he claims, are all ready to die, ready to die for the Russian homeland and for the Russian people. Now, uh, a little bit of context here. Uh, We know that he has uh, announced that he is going to lead a march for justice into Russia after accusing the top Russian military command of genocide against the Russian people. We have seen images on social media uh, of armed groups of tanks and armored personnel carriers deployed in the southern city of Rostov, a southern Russian city, which is not far from the Ukrainian border. Uh, We have heard that the Russian government has issued, uh, launched a criminal case against Prigozhin, accusing him of armed rebellion. And we also know that one of the most senior military commanders in the Russian military, who uh, was believed in the past to have been close to Prigozhin himself, this is the deputy commander of the Russian Joint Forces, General Sergei Suravikin, he came out and issued a video statement, an appeal to the fighters and commanders of this Wagner mercenary group, uh, telling them, uh, hey, we are brothers in arms, but stop this before it's too late. Basically submit to uh, the Russian government. So there's clearly some kind of uh, power struggle taking place. You've got the most powerful mercenary chieftain in Russia uh, who was fighting on the front lines for more than a year, uh, now being accused openly of armed rebellion. We've had statements that the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, is being kept up to date about this, but we haven't heard anything firsthand from him. I just got off the phone with a contact in Moscow, uh, Allison. He was out partying in the nightclubs all night, but he says now this is all anybody's talking about in Moscow right now, though the streets there, in his opinion, still look normal. We've heard from the governor of the Rostov region uh, urging people to stay off the streets and to be careful, Uh, and we've heard from the governor of Moscow, uh, the mayor of Moscow, that anti-terrorist activities are starting to take place. There are new security precautions uh, underway right now. So this is a tense situation and we do not know how it will unfold. Yes, I'm so glad you brought up Moscow because it's early morning in Moscow right now, early Saturday morning, but the streets do look calm at the moment, different than they did last night when we saw the armed uh, vehicles going through. But as you say, the mayor of Moscow says they're taking precautions as you say, anti-terrorist precautions, as they call them. Obviously, we will keep an eye on exactly what Moscow looks like right now. Ivan, thank you very much for all of that context. So more news tonight. The NTSB announcing that the U.S. Coast Guard will lead the investigation into the fatal implosion of the Titan submersible. I want to bring in now underwater forensics expert Rhonda Moniz. Rhonda, thank you so much. Um, We really appreciate having you back tonight so that we can understand what this investigation is going to look like. Where do you begin 12,000 feet under the sea to figure out exactly what happened? 
That's a really good question, Allison. You know, this, I, I mentioned this when we spoke before, this is such a complicated operation. It really is. They're dealing with weather. This has been a really bad season for the weather up there. It's a remote location. It's 12, as you mentioned, 12,500 feet deep. There's not a lot of assets that can reach those depths and work in those depths. They need people that are highly qualified and trained to run that operation. Uh, where they need to start is where they've been starting. They're, they need to um, map and document those debris fields as much as they possibly can while they have those work-class ROVs um, on the ocean floor. That's what they need to do. They need to get as much information, collect as much data, document it as much as they can. And if there's any small pieces that the uh, ROV, they do have manipulator arms that they can collect, they can pick up some things, then they can, um, they can do that. And then they'll have to come in with deep water salvage equipment following that to remove or recover the larger pieces of equipment. But Rhonda, I mean, in terms of figuring out ever where the um, structural integrity was lost, if that's what happened, how will Mm -hmm. they figure out if it was in the tail or if it was in a seam or if it was in the carbon fiber? Like, how will you be able to pinpoint what happened? So that's why it's so important for them to map and document the debris fields and then collect as much of what's left small pieces, larger pieces that they'll need that deep water salvage equipment to uh, to raise the heavier pieces with. They're going to have to get everything they possibly can and do as much documentation as they can so that they can put it all together on the surface. And really, it's going to be like a puzzle. They're going to have to try to put as much back together. That's why they need as much data as possible, reconstruct it to see where it looks like things went wrong. Rhonda Moniz, your job is fascinating. Thank you for explaining a portion of it to us. Uh, We appreciate talking to you. Thank you, Allison. A pleasure. We'll be right back. Last month, a first-of-its-kind reunion took place in Miami Beach. The top 10 CNN heroes from 2021 and 2022 came together to receive the nonprofit training that is part of their Heroes Award and hosted by the Elevate Prize Foundation. They also took time out to help the planet and Miami's vibrant ecosystem. Here's Anderson Cooper. We are out here in Virginia Key Beach, Miami, Florida, and we are cleaning up. Let's do it. We're clearing the way for hatchlings. How cool is that? We're reintroducing native plants back into this ecosystem as a way to combat a lot of the invasive species that have come in. My day-to-day is working marine mammals and rehabilitating, so it's important to do this type of work. Also important is the nonprofit training that helps their organizations grow stronger and their missions go even further. We've learned about social media, financial planning, nonprofit management. It's all been extremely helpful. Having the opportunity to learn how to do more so that we can grow what we're doing, we can expand and we can serve more people. It's just an opportunity that I'm so grateful for. To see Anderson's full story on this special reunion, go to CNNHeroes.com. And this week, at a special time, Chris Wallace talks to Senator Cory Booker and Indiana Jones himself, Harrison Ford. Who's Talking to Chris Wallace will air tomorrow night 
at 8 on CNN, and it's also streaming on Max. Thank you very much for being with us tonight for all of this breaking news. It is now morning in Moscow, and Russians are waking up to the news that Russia's security service is accusing the Wagner Group leader, Prigozhin, of calling for a coup. CNN's special live coverage continues right after this quick break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.